Tour Guide Tell All is sponsored by Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local DC area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who may have more questions than answers. Like us at DC by Foot, we're really excited for our educational content meeting where they're gonna talk all about liability issues for tour guides. Visit their website at Malloy, M-A-L-L-O-Y-Law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. Now on to the Rebecca's. Everybody, welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the often scandalous and uh, interesting darker sides of history. Uh, we are finishing up a three-parter today with our final for now episode on 1968. So um, just immediately, if you haven't listened to part one, part two, go back, listen to those. We highly recommend. This is meant to be sort of a trio. As always, though, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we are... Um, We are very, very excited to be wrapping up our series on 1968. Thank you to everybody who's uh, been listening along with us. Thank you, of course, to our wonderful patrons. We literally could not do this without you. I also wanted to shout out one of our listeners, Kate, who sent us a really fabulous email talking about her experiences in D.C. as somebody in their early 20s in 1968 and talking about what it was like here. Uh, We love hearing from you. Please, please, please always send us an email if we're ever doing an episode on a topic that you lived through or you experienced or you have an interest in. We love to hear your feedback. So thanks for being a listener, Kate. Thanks for listening to the pod. Thanks for your wonderful email and giving us that sort of D.C. local POV on what it was like to live through 1968. Um, that was really, really cool. So you can always reach out to us, any listener, tourguytellall at gmail.com. Yes. Welcome back. This is part three. Whew. Originally, when we I gamed this out, I was like, oh, it'll be two-parters. It'll be easy. And then it was not easy. I feel like theoretically, we could have done like a 12-parter on 1968. <laughs> oh my gosh. There's so much. Like, I, I, And is this just the United States? Like, This is not to mention the unrest that happens literally everywhere else on Earth. Prague Spring is that year. There's unrest in China. The French, I mean, the French riot, like it's their job, but they riot particularly in 1968. Like it's a big year. There's a lot going on. Uh, And so here we are. And so we're just going to pick right up. The conventions have both happened. We're at the beginning of September. The sort of campaign, part of the campaign has begun. They've got vice presidents. Uh, or vice presidential uh, nominees, I should say. Uh, And we're headed down the home stretch of this election. And out of the box, Humphrey is looking sad. It's not great for him. It was not a really strong outing coming out of that Democratic convention, right? That that unrest, the TV coverage, none of this looks really good for the Dems. And it certainly doesn't look like Humphrey is a man who can get the nation under control. 
right? If you are concerned about unrest in the U.S., which many people in 1968 were, Humphrey doesn't look like a guy who can handle it. He does not. And the Democratic Party looks like they're at all different angles and ends. I should mention that in the research for this, there was a riot in Miami where the Republican convention was a few blocks away, but no one covered it because the Republican convention was boring and Nixon was definitely going to get nominated and it wasn't a big deal. And so it's a much smaller riot, it should be said, but like there's unrest all over the place. But Nixon, all he really has to do at this point is just say, hey, I'm not that essentially. You know, I am not this explosion of grievance and violence. I am law and order. And so Nixon really very savvy, particularly for Nixon, sort of just basically sits back a little bit and he campaigns, but he doesn't, he draws a sort of comparison by not actually drawing a comparison, like basically saying, hey, I'm not those people. You know, I'm for you guys. I'm for middle of the road, the people who are, you know, not quite sure what is going on with the Democrats. The Humphrey campaign, the Democrats have paid a massive price for this unrest. Humphrey starts out double digits down in the polls, which is almost an unrecoverable amount. Like, that's bad. And really not a good launch for the sitting vice president to be that far down is really not good and without having actually looked at the data i would say very unlikely to this is not typical atypical for a sitting vice president who's won the nomination to be starting so low right and he he knows that he's in a bad spot and the Humphrey campaign, like, I would imagine they're not talking about this particularly with Humphrey, but the Democrats are basically saying, we hope we can just get enough votes to not come in third place. We don't want Wallace to beat us, uh, which is a lot. Um, that's like a hard spot to be in. And it is worth talking briefly about George Wallace. Let's briefly, because George Wallace, my goodness. He's a whole thing. George Wallace is from Alabama. He's going to run representing the American Independent Party, overtly segregationist. Those are the two words with George Wallace. That's it. George Wallace has a long and very public career in the national spotlight. He has already been in the national spotlight for a while at this point, and he'll be a factor in 1972 as well. Spoiler alert. But he's a lot. And he is this. We're still in the midst of the shift parties are shifting. The Democrats are no longer really representing the segregationists. That's the sort of part of the Democratic Party that they're trying to shut out. And Wallace is trying to like appeal to those voters, draw off enough support from both Nixon and crucially Humphrey to essentially play spoiler. He knows he's not going to win. Like that's not the goal for Wallace. He wants to draw off enough of these Southern voters, which are very much his base, to essentially play spoiler, force it to go to the House of Representatives. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting for those that may not immediately ring a bell when you hear George Wallace, Wallace is the man who in his uh, governor inaugural address would say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. And that's 1963. So this is only five years later and his views have not changed. This is who he is. He has a deep embrace of Jim Crow. This is a man who very, very much is campaigning against the federal overreach into the South and wanting to run on this sort of platform that states governors, state legislatures should have a right to determine just how segregationist and discriminatory their states can be. And this is not 
a wildly unpopular position, there is enough support there and there's enough, particularly in the South, enough governors and state legislators who are feeling threatened by the massive social change that's happening at this time and the massive amount of progress the Johnson administration has made on a federal level. We touch on this a little bit in part one, but Johnson, for all of his flaws, does a lot to wield the power of the federal government to try to push us out of Jim Crow. And Wallace is very much representing the parties to which they are not interested in ever leaving that behind. So if you've never heard of Wallace, you've maybe heard that segregation now, segregation today, segregation forever. And that is that is him. And so, yeah, there's there's a lane there, unfortunately. Right. That's where Wallace is hoping. He's hoping his lane is the people who are disaffected by the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. He is also going to sort of tailor his messages like he wants. He's got a lot of anti-establishment rhetoric. He attacks concentrated wealth. It's not just segregation, although that is his main platform. Humphrey tries to attack Wallace as a racist bigot, which in fact he is, and who is appealing to the darker impulses in America. And Wallace is rising in the polls. He actually peaks at about 21%. But then he picks somebody as his vice presidential running mate that is not especially popular. Uh, he picks Curtis LeMay, <laughs> which Curtis LeMay has a brief mention, I believe, in our uh, Cuban Missile Crisis episode. He's got strong national security credentials. He's a, a pretty big deal. He had suggested using tactical nukes in Vietnam. Uh, so that's kind of where Curtis LeMay is. And he will later on be the inspiration for Dr. Strangelove. So that's him, which is <laughs> amazing. How special. Um, yes. Yeah, he picks LeMay. And like, you know, Wallace is a colorful character. Actually, Wallace is eminently quotable. Yes. Um, he really comes down against the hippies and says the only four letter words they don't know is soap and work, which, you know, is ridiculous, but kind of fun. But then you have Wallace, who's a colorful character, in addition to being just a, a virulent biggest. But then you add Curtis LeMay to the mix. And this is a duo that is going to draw a lot of media attention and going to draw a lot of spotlight. And this primarily hurts Humphrey. The two of them are going to get a lot of newspaper coverage, a lot of media coverage, a lot of attention. And so that is going to hurt primarily our Democratic candidate. Yes. So poor Humphrey. Um, Nixon is employing what's called the Southern strategy. And the Southern strategy has a long history. It is primarily associated with Nixon in this campaign, although that's kind of a little unfair because the Southern strategy had existed before this. Goldwater tries the same thing. Nixon's going to do it again because it works real well for him. Uh, but the Southern strategy is essentially the same thing Wallace is trying to do draw people away from the solidly democratic South. Basically invest in racial grievance, invest in anti-establishment rhetoric, look at, you know, what how many years of the Democrats, we got eight years of the Democrats at this point, look at what they've done to us. And he's going to find a lane for people with people who are really kind of okay with the way that things had been before Jim Crow was abolished. Um, and so that's kind of where Nixon's going to go. He's going in the same kind of place as Wallace is, but just he's a little less overt about it, I think I would say. And poor Humphrey. I know, just, I feel bad for Humphrey. He's going to consistently trail. He's watching his party disintegrate. Like the old Democratic coalition is disintegrating around him and there's not a lot that he can do to hold it together. And in fairness, like it takes a personality like LBJ to hold this disintegrating coalition together. Humphrey's not that guy. Like he's just not. Um, he's going to 
basically one of his big strategies is what he calls the politics of joy, which is cute, but also. Yeah. And if you've listened to, I don't know, the other two parts of this, it's really hard to run on joy in 1968. Yeah. There is so much happening and so many legitimate grievances, so many legitimate painful events that America has faced and endured that to run on a platform of joy is going to feel out of touch to people. And that's fair. I, I, I think it was, you know, if you could go back in time and be in the room when they're sort of deciding that this is the way to go, you want to sort of be like, guys, read, read the country. Like he's basically focuses on unions which is a smart strategy, particularly back then. The unions are very strong. He's going to sort of focus on the on union work and the dignity of work. Um, and Humphrey does put up a good fight. I will say this about Humphrey. He really does. He fights back. He fights hard. He's going to distance himself from the president, from Johnson, which is extremely difficult for him. Humphrey, whatever else he was, was a very loyal deputy for Lyndon Johnson for four years. And so for him to now like literally distance himself from LBJ is a a tough call. It's a tough swing. He is going to refer to himself as candidate Humphrey rather than vice president uh, on the campaign trail, essentially not to draw the connection to Johnson, which on the one hand, no, there's no other hand. It's a terrible idea. Like there's no doubt who this man is. He's been tied to Johnson for four years now. Like you can't just switch in the middle of it. it just looks bad. It looks weak uh, and out of touch. However, yeah. And while perhaps your moderates might go, oh, you're so tied to Johnson, the party base still loves Johnson, right? The, there's a lot of love for Johnson at the base of the party. And Humphrey trying to do this really doesn't help anyone. Uh, it doesn't energize his base. And it's not he's not winning over these moderates anyway, who are unhappy with the direction of the country. So it's sort of like a lose-lose to do that. However, eventually, as Wallace declines in the polls, those voters come home to the Democratic Party and Humphrey starts to climb. So as we're getting closer and closer to election day, Wallace is becoming more of a non-factor. People are starting to realize they're not going to throw their vote away on Wallace. Uh, and they start to come home to the Democratic Party. They start to re-embrace Humphrey. So he starts to go up uh, in polls. And then a week before the election, Johnson announces a halt in the bombing in Vietnam, which is going to significantly give Humphrey a big boost. McCarthy finally endorses him just a few days before the election, despite having previously been reluctant to do this. So Eugene McCarthy, one of the guys he's run against for the primary, is going to endorse him. And so now, by the end of October, the polls are showing a dead heat. Humphrey has made up all that distance, and Wallace has become an increasing non-factor. And now we're at sort of a dead heat. And Nixon is in no way thrilled by this. Because suddenly he's calling this the October surprise that, you know, LBJ and Humphrey are acting in concert to throw the election to Humphrey by this big bomb, uh, halting the bombing campaign. This is going to directly impact Humphrey. So Nixon is going to kind of cook up a October surprise of his own. And I think it's worth mentioning, we talk a little bit about Nixon's background in part two, but, you know, they didn't call him Tricky Dick for nothing. This is a man who in every campaign he's been a part of has been not above throwing little wrenches into the works and pushing the limits of what is ethically and morally appropriate for a candidate to do. And we'll do probably at some point in, in our podcast, a real deep dive on Nixon and, and some campaigns that he's a part of. But, you know, by 1968, this is a man who 
has already in previous campaigns maneuvered, utilized surrogates, we'll say, to complicate matters. Uh, so this is a man who is not new to this. And it's kind of interesting to me. You know, I feel like he was looking the polls at maybe saying, like, I don't need to do anything. I don't need to do anything. And then as the polls get closer and closer, Nixon's a deeply paranoid, insecure man. He's desperate to win this election. He wants to be president so badly. He can taste it that he is not above perhaps even towing the line of what may be legally appropriate. But please know, this doesn't come out of nowhere. This is a man who, for 15 years of his political career, has been pushing the limit as a candidate. Yes. So Nixon is, this is going to engineer something called the Chenault Affair. And so let's, I'm going to back up briefly and talk about who the Chenaults were. Um, there's two of them. Anna Chenault is the, the one who's going to be the sort of actor in this story, but it's worth mentioning her husband as well. Her husband's name is Claire Chenault. And he, by this time, by 1968, he is dead. Um, but they were big Sinophiles, Chinese. She, in fact, is Chinese. Uh, Claire Chennault uh, led the Flying Tigers during World War II. So he's a fighter pilot and a really decorated one. He's a big, important guy. He's a, um, very close to Chiang Kai-shek. And you got to remember, in World War II, China isn't communist yet. They're still nationalist. And so he's very close to the nationalist Chinese uh, regime. He is a big China, um, he speaks some Chinese, he marries his second wife, Anna, who is also, by the way, half his age, um, is, uh, she's Chinese. So he is a big uh, Sinophile. And he's also a pretty smart guy, he's a businessman, and he makes himself a lot of money. So that's going to mean that when his uh, second wife and his children from his second marriage come back to the United States... They're very wealthy. In fact, he's smart enough that he's from Louisiana. He lives in Louisiana. But due to the anti-miscegenation laws in the South at that time, he arranges to have his will probated in Washington, D.C. so that his wife isn't cheated out of money by uh, any of his other relatives. So she's a very wealthy widow at this point. She's relatively young. She donates a lot of time and money to the Republicans. She is, as you can imagine, staunchly anti-communist, right? She doesn't want the communist. She thinks the communist Chinese regime is illegitimate. That's why she supports Nixon and the Republicans, because they are so strong uh, against communism. Uh, and so she is involved in something called the China Lobby. Uh, and her husband had been before his death in 1958, uh, but she kind of gets more involved after he dies. She serves as chairwoman of the Republican women for Nixon uh, in the 1968 campaign. So she's really involved and kind of at upper levels. And what happens here is a little complicated uh, and also is not particularly well known at the time. So some of this stuff comes out in like the drip, drip, drip of releasing documents over the last 50 years. But go back to our first part of this, when LBJ announces that he's not running for president again in, on March 31st, the larger reason he's speaking to the American public is he's announcing a partial halt to the bombing uh, in North Vietnam and openness to peace talks. So that's the backdrop to this. The peace talks begin in May in Paris, and Avril Harriman, who we've also already mentioned, he leads the U.S. delegation. By July, Anna Chenault is going to introduce Nixon, who is by this time the presumptive Republican nominee, to the South Vietnamese ambassador to the United Nations, Boy Diem. And if we're mispronouncing any of these Chinese or Vietnamese names, it is complete, the error is completely ours. <laughs> Um, this is a Logan Act violation right here. Like Nixon is not president. He's actually technically not the nominee yet. 
Uh, and he is talking to a representative of a foreign government in an official capacity. That's a big Logan Act violation. Hi. Yeah, you, you cannot do that. Unauthorized, that is unauthorized negotiations. This is, you know, it's a Logan Act violation. It's also just morally wrong, right? You know, we have a president, we have a commander in chief. We have congressional delegations. That is the purview of elected officials, not a politico running for office. Um, and Nixon knows this. Nixon knows this. Nixon had been vice president. He knows that this is bad. And then, because this situation isn't fraught enough, enter Henry Kissinger. Who at the time of recording this podcast is still among us, which, oh boy. <laughs> Kissinger had initially opposed Nixon, but really wanted a job in the administration. So suddenly he's going to switch horses, as he's wont to do. Uh, to court Nixon, he's going to offer to act as a spy. Uh, Kissinger knows Avril Harriman, the leader of the American delegation in Paris for the Vietnam, Vietnam peace talks, and he's going to lie to Harriman about his involvement with Nixon. On October 12th, Harriman reports to Kissinger, and Kissinger then reports to Nixon, that a peace deal is close. So this is October, middle of beginning of October. The election is less than a month away, and the Nixon campaign is getting the information that there's a peace deal on the table and that they're close to it. Which should be great, right? We're going to end a war. People will stop dying. This is why Johnson chose not to run, to free up time and right. energy to pursue a peaceful end to the war in Vietnam and a peace that would be theoretically good for the people of Vietnam and good for getting American service members out. I think it's important to remember that. This is what Johnson's trying to do. This is putting nation before self, and that's why Johnson mm -hmm. doesn't run. And now Nixon, a man desperate to win the presidency, is learning that this peace deal is about to happen. And it's going to make Johnson and by extension, the Democratic Party and Humphrey look very, very good. And Nixon is just not going to be able to help himself. No, he's not. So Nixon, the Nixon campaign basically puts things into motion. The South Vietnamese ambassador to the United Nations, we already mentioned, Diem, he will cable the South Vietnamese president, Van Thieu, that he's in contact with Anna Chenault. So he's basically got a back channel to the Nixon campaign. Basically, he tells him, hold firm against this peace deal. Don't sign it. You'll get a better deal under Nixon. We'll, you'll do better come January. And the reason we know this is because Chanel is being tapped. <laughs> she, like they're, being, they're tapping her movements, both the CIA and the FBI. They're tapping her phones. And so LBJ finds out about this and calls it treason because actually... It is, honestly. Uh, he, called, he calls Nixon and he warns him. And so not a lot of this is known at the time. In fact, some of this really, like, there had been the idea for a long time that Anna Chennault acts as an independent actor, that she's not yeah. in contact with the campaign or specifically not in contact with Nixon. That was the story Nixon basically tries to sell LBJ on. Yeah, this woman might be doing these things, but I have not told her to do this. I did not know doing at my direction or at my instruction. So that's what Nixon's going to try to sell Johnson. In 2017, there is a memo uncovered from Haldeman, H.R. Haldeman, who's part of Nixon's inner circle, that Nixon authorized throwing a monkey wrench into Johnson's peace negotiations. So Nixon did it. 
which if you know anything about Nixon and Watergate and the whole line of, I didn't know, and these are people underneath me doing things without my knowledge, we know now that that's bullshit. Nixon was almost exclusively always aware of what his underlings were doing. And there's really no way that Chenault would have moved forward without explicit instructions from Nixon and without his support. But of course, as as you mentioned, a lot of this doesn't come out into public record until very recently. A man as paranoid as Nixon, I just don't see him not knowing about this. If it's at his campaign's direction, I don't see him not knowing about it. The result of all this is that on October 31st, so literally Halloween with the, the election five days away, the president of South Vietnam, Van Tu, is going to abruptly abandon negotiations. He's going to claim, and this is what gets reported in the press, that he's angry over the seating arrangements, which is not like they had argued the North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese had actually argued over the size of the table and the size of the chair. And this had been a thing. But he is going to claim now that we have organized everything, now that there is a peace deal in place, he's going to claim retroactively, essentially, that he's annoyed at the seating arrangements uh, at the peace talks and basically walk out. And imagine for a moment that you are Lyndon B. Johnson, that this is what you have been working towards. This is why you chose not to run. This is, you know, knowing that there are American lives on the line and you get this close and you, Johnson, know that Nixon is involved. And if, you know, you're Johnson and Johnson is not a man that's always known for controlling his temper. He's not known for being even keeled. You think that Johnson would lose his mind and like blow it all up and he doesn't. And I think, again, an illustration of Johnson putting country before self and country before politics, because how would this really look if he had broadly gone public with it in a year where there's already so much distrust in government leaders, politicians, The idea that a a major party nominee would undermine American security, undermine peace in Vietnam, would have just further wrecked the country. And so although Johnson speaks to Nixon, he speaks to advisors, he ultimately decides he doesn't want to reveal broadly to the American public what he knows, and he stays quiet on it. And in some ways, you can go, dude, if you had just let people know things might have turned out very differently. And knowing what happens with the Nixon administration, it might have been for the better. But you have to admire it in 1968 because it was a, it would have been a powder keg. Yes. And, you know, people get crazy right before an election because the election's going to happen no matter, like it's a time bomb, essentially. And this happens in every election. You lose your mind a little bit the week before the election, particularly if you're involved in one of the major campaigns, particularly if it's close. It's like watching a soccer match, you have to make decisions under pressure all the time. And every single thing you do, every press release you put out is going to affect some things, affect some voter somewhere. And is it enough on the margins to affect a victory? And so that's what's kind of going through everyone's mind. Johnson doesn't want to also reveal how he got this information that we are literally wiretapping an American citizen uh, who's involved in some kind of espionage. And so he tells Humphrey and Nixon that he has this information, but that he's not going to make it public. Humphrey declines to make it public as well, probably because it wouldn't have looked as good coming from him. It would have looked nakedly political, which is what it would have been. Yeah. It coming from the president versus coming from the political opponent. And Humphrey's going to do what Johnson is doing. He's not going to go against Johnson 
that hard in, in this situation. As you mentioned, a very loyal, good deputy and a good member of the party. And Humphrey's surging in the polls. He thinks he's going to win. He thinks he doesn't need this to win. And given how this all turns out, the Chenault involvement seems to be decisive. Like this is a big deal. Um, it is going to publicly thwart Johnson's peace talks. The South Vietnamese have walked out. They are no longer interested in this, this peace talks that we've been building towards for months. The peace negotiations, had they gone through, would have pushed the election to Humphrey. And so Chenault's involvement in getting this peace process stopped seems to be a decisive factor in the election. Partly because Nixon wins, no one is prosecuted under a Logan Act violation. <laughs> so basically, you can break the law, and if you get away with it, you don't have to prosecute anybody. And Nixon is going to personally thank Anna Chenault for being a good soldier, and then, as Nixon does, distance himself from her. And so this affects her. She complains that she pays dearly for this. She declined, like she th had thought about being an ambassador, but she's going to decline to seek an ambassador role because she doesn't want to run into the United States Senate with all of this. Um, essentially, Nixon is his sort of line to Johnson is, yeah, this woman might have done these things, but it was not at my direction. So she was a, a rogue actor. And she really basically kind of fades from public view. She'll do a few things with the Republican Party, including support President Reagan, but she's going to pay very dearly for this uh, because Nixon is not always great to his friends. It's very, very Nixon to be like, thank you for helping me and doing what you need to do. And now I worry that you're a liability. So goodbye. Right. Goodbye. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, the election is on November 5th, 1968. It is extremely close. The polls are a dead, even, dead heat going into election day. Nixon wins by an, one percentage point. And here's a little wrinkle to this. So we're going to break down the numbers in just a second, but I would also like to mention in 1968, if you're, you have to be 21 to vote, they don't pass the constitutional amendment. It doesn't get out of the constitution for another three years that you can be 18 and vote. So we think of this year as being this overwhelming youth outcry and sort of outreach to young people. And it was, but you have to be 21 to vote, which means the baby boomers aren't voting by and large. If you're a baby boomer, by definition, you're born in 1946, you're at most 22. Now, obviously, generational cutoffs are arbitrary, and there's certainly young people who are not technically boomers uh, that are involved. But the sort of idea that we have, this is a major baby boomer year, is not borne out. It cannot be borne out in the voting booth. And imagine for one second that 18 to 20 year olds have been able to vote in this election. Would that have been enough in a extremely tight election? Probably. Who knows? We'll never know. Yeah. If you think about who's in the streets, you know, think about who's out in the streets protesting, who's out there on the front lines of the civil rights movement. Who are the men sure. being shipped off to fight in this war? They're 18 to 20 years old. That's a huge part of who is speaking out and protesting. When we think about the moment of 1968, it is very much an emergence of this youth movement. And yet they are disenfranchised. They are not able to cast a vote. And so you are losing what absolutely would have been a sort of, I think, swing element to this. It would have swung the election very firmly to Humphrey. And this will be, this election is going to be one of the reasons that there is a push to lower the voting mm -hmm. age. 
the war in Vietnam is going to be another super major element of that. Asking someone to die for their country but not being allowed to vote is pretty egregious. Um, But people will be upset. Young people will be upset about this election. And this is going to be one of the factors that pushes us towards lowering the voting age. Nixon wins by about a percentage point, literally 512,000 votes or a margin of about one percentage point. Because of the way the votes fall out is electoral college. He carries 32 states and 301 electoral college votes. Humphrey wins states and 191 electoral college votes. And Wallace, in fact, takes states and 46 electoral college votes. So he very much does almost play spoiler. Wallace does. And Wallace, I think up to the present day, this is the best performance of a third party candidate. We've not had a third party candidate perform as well as Wallace since 1968. Five states, 46 electoral college votes. That absolutely could have been a deciding factor. Yes. It comes down to California, Ohio, and Illinois, which all of which Nixon wins by three percentage points per state. Imagine California and Illinois being like decisive. Like what? Imagine too, Nixon, he's from California. Like, and he only wins it by less than 3%. I think that speaks to how people feel about Nixon (laughs) in terms of like, you know, are you voting for Nixon? Are you voting for just law and order or just like a different way people are are feeling like ready for a change? But he doesn't carry California with any sort of really big, you know, mandate. (laughs) No, he does not. Humphrey won all three of those states, which is a smooth. By the Nixon wins by a slim margin. Uh, he would have been president had Humphrey carried either California or both of the other two. The election would have gone to the House. It would have been that deeply split. Uh, so California and it's like all, many electoral votes are going to, as always, is the big prize. And that would have provided the big difference had it gone in a different direction. Uh, the winner's not declared until Wednesday morning, the next day. And Nixon... I have to say, Nixon is very gracious in victory. Nixon's an, a very complicated man. And for the most part on our like national consciousness, he has a negative, like Watergate paints him in a negative light for a, a lot of most people. But the, the thing about Nixon is the big bullet point is never the whole story. Like Nixon's a deeply insecure, but complicated man. And in this moment and several other moments in his career, he displays a lot of graciousness. He is actually going to, when Humphrey calls to concede, which is traditionally done, um, he he, Nixon's like, listen, no one knows better than I do how you feel right now. I've lost a close presidential election too. I'm the only person in the world who knows how bad this is. And he basically is very gracious in his victory, which is just not what you'd expect to hear from Nixon. But he's very, he's gracious to uh, Humphrey. And the lopsided electoral college vote versus the prop popular vote prompts calls to abolish the electoral college, Becca. <laughs> You mean that that is not something that has just come up recently, that people in the past thought the Electoral College was nuts? Hmm. <laughs> Anytime someone someone says, oh, well, you know, nowadays people want to, you know, abolish this or get rid of this. It's like people in the past also thought that this was crazy. Right. And also the Electoral College isn't doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's flawed anyway, but okay. But also, obviously, spoiler, as of the recording of this podcast, we still have an Electoral College. So um, that did not change. This election, though, is a really seismic shift for both of the major parties. So what this election illustrates to both Democrats and Republicans is that their coalitions are changing, their bases are changing. Uh, The Democrats had had a pretty solid hold on the White House 
in many of the elections since well, kind of from Woodrow Wilson which we talked about 1912, uh, up to 1968. And even with two terms of Eisenhower, the strength of the Democratic Party really influenced Eisenhower. He had to sort of go a middle road because the Democratic Party was so powerful. This is going to shift to the Republicans. If you know a little bit about the back half of the 20th century, we're going to see Republicans, for the most part, holding on to the White House. And we're starting to really see a realignment of power. And we're starting to see both parties reassess and redirect where their party power and where their party base is. So it is more complex than simply the parties switching, which is how I think it's often talked about. But we are really seeing a realignment and a shifting that is going to continue, particularly as we approach 1980, which I'm sure we will talk about at some point (laughs) in an election episode. Right. But this is an, a really, really pivotal election. And if you if you follow election history, 68 is a big one. 68 is important. And it's worth noting that between 1968 and 2004, only two Democrats win the White House. And they're both Southern. So this is going to, you're going to see the shift, how the parties are shifting, how the balance of power is shifting between the two parties. Uh, and Republicans re- remain very much in control for most of what's about to come. Uh, It isn't until 2008 that we have a non-Southern Democrat, Barack Obama of Illinois, elected to the White House. So this is the changes politics for the better part of a generation, if not longer. Uh, And so the, the ripple effects of 1968 continue to affect us, which is why this is such a pivotal and interesting uh, election. There's a lot kind of going on after this, like Nixon's presidency goes in a bunch of directions. Um, we're not going to relitigate Watergate, but there's 1968 is such a pivotal year. Imagine Humphrey winning. Imagine Bobby Kennedy lived and w- would have won. Like there's so many great what ifs of what could have happened here. The other thing that sort of goes sort of under the radar is Nixon's choice of a vice presidential running mate. Spiro Agnew was no one's first choice. He was way hard right. And the idea, the thought was that Nixon should pick someone more liberal, like a Nelson Rockefeller, appeal to moderates. Nixon's choice of Agnew looks really great as they are sort of representing a bulwark against this sort of democratic radicalism. So Agnew helps Nixon actually. And it's going to pull the party closer and closer to the right. So we're getting more aligned with the people who will ultimately support Reagan in 1976 uh, and then in 1980. So Nixon is succeeding in yanking the party more and more to the right. Yeah, despite the fact that Nixon is really, by all accounts, a moderate, his choice of vice president here is a really, really important moment for the Republican Party. I think we should also um, just note Vietnam for a moment because. Nixon, through Chenault, blows up the peace talks. And if you know a little bit about the history of uh, the end of the Vietnam War, it doesn't end in 1969. It's going to take us till 1975 to the fall of Saigon and the withdrawal. And so Nixon, by sacrificing these peace talks and by putting the election before ending the war. We are going to remain in Vietnam. We are going to continue to lose American lives for another six years almost. The drawdown of troops like kind of happens so piecemeal over the next few years. And by 1972, we are largely out of ground troops in Vietnam, but we don't actually get out of Vietnam. The last Americans to die in Vietnam is in 1975. So that's another seven years almost of American deaths that could have been avoided if Nixon had not interfered. Uh, and so that's that. And not Johnson will very much say that that blood is on Nixon's hands. 
because Johnson knows Nixon's up to no good. And that's a really, I think, important point is that there's a lot of these deaths were very much avoidable. And as we move into the 70. Not, not to mention South Vietnamese, not to mention the lack of stability there, uh, the very, very messy American withdrawal. And so a lot of that, it's easy. I think Johnson in our discourse, and rightfully so, carries a big burden of ramping this war up, putting Americans on the ground. We tend to forget that Nixon, by approaching the peace talks the way he did and using Chenault in the way that he did, really has blood on his hands, I think, for those last few years. And um, he does not immediately come in in 1969 and say, this is it, let's go. And he doesn't offer a better peace deal initially. So I think that it's worth touching on that. Yeah, the, the repercussions of this um, sort of spiral out for a while. And it is not, Nixon does not offer them a better peace deal. They don't get a better deal under Nixon. There is no resumption of peace talks immediately. Um, it takes a little while. And so how many lives could have been saved had they things have gone differently uh, as we're approaching the ceasefire and the, the halt to bombing in 1968. It's unknowable. It is unknowable, but uh, worth, uh, I think, illustrating there. So yeah, um, I love that Rebecca says we're not going to relitigate Watergate because I think we should at some point. Oh yeah, we definitely <laughs> should, It's not here. <laughs> yeah, that is 1968. It's crazy. It's a lot. And I am sure, particularly if you lived through it and remember it, there's a lot we didn't talk about because we can only fit so much in. Uh, so if there's something that you particularly heard that you want us to drill down on, if there's something that sparked your interest and you want to hear more about it, let us know because there's a lot of stuff we could talk about here. And 1968 is endlessly complicated and really fascinating. And I want to go back to something we said at the very beginning of this trilogy, which is about 75% of the images you're thinking of from the 60s took place in this year. Like this is like the year in the 1960s. There's so many different things going on. There's so much uncertainty and you can very much see how so many people wanted to pull the lever for Nixon, even though they didn't necessarily want to pull the lever for Nixon. They wanted some stability. Uh, and so that's kind of my takeaway. It's nowhere near as overwhelming a victory. Like we think of Nixon's overwhelming 72 victory and we never knew to do a podcast about 72 because it's a big victory. Nixon wins overwhelmingly. Uh, but this one is not. He wins by the narrowest of margins. And it's very interesting that Nixon could have become uh, someone who lost two very narrow presidential victories um, in, uh, the, in, the, in the same decade, 1960 against Kennedy. Uh, and he could have very easily lost in 1968. So it's really Nixon's comeback is one of the more interesting comebacks in American uh, political history. And thanks for coming along with us on the ride. This was fun times. <laughs> oh my gosh. Really, really fun. Really interesting. Uh, just huge, huge implications for the rest of 20th century America. Mm -hmm. Yes. Massive. Thank you so much listeners, patrons for coming along with us. Thank you for those who've emailed or reached out about the 1968 topic. We definitely want to hear from more of you. If you guys email us or hit us up on social media at tour guide, tell on Twitter at tour guide, tell all on Instagram. Um, we definitely want to hear your feedback, your thoughts. Um, and we're happy to share those in a future pod. Um, 
As always, if you have ideas to pitch the pod, feel free to send those as well. And for our patrons, be sure to be tuning in to your special patron-only feed. Uh, we have a really fun uh, patron-only episode for November. Uh, it's got everything. It's got drama. It's got love. It's got Titanic. <laughs> it's got everything. So um, definitely make sure you're a patron. If you're not a patron, it makes a perfect holiday gift. So consider gifting a patronage to somebody and they can get access to um, our special patron-only episodes. Yeah. We are going to be moving into a really fun topic for our next episode, something I'll say holiday yeah. adjacent, not strictly a Christmas episode, but it is going to be uh, adjacent to the holiday season. And uh, we're going to get out of the 20th century for a little bit um, for our next couple of episodes. So we're going to move back into the past a little further. So keep tuning in with us. Uh, thank you as always for everything. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, patrons. Thanks, everybody.